and welcome to office hour for March. Uh, glad to see everybody here. Um, we'll start off with questions from you guys. I've got a couple of things that I've been thinking about with regard to um, revision and some things of that nature, but let's see what you guys come up with, or what you've been working on, dealing with. Nothing? Is, should, should we say something then about what yeah. we're on? Okay. So nice to see you again, Seth. Um, yeah. I'm still working on the same uh, story that I was working on in your class, which is the uh, fantasy novel about uh, Aaron and, uh, and the demons. And uh, that's, that's coming along. I'm actually finishing up another class uh, at Lit Reactor right now, fantasy and sci-fi sci toolbox. And, uh, and yeah, I've, we've been working on like, um, uh, enhancing tension, uh, this last week. And so, uh, there's, there's, you know, I've, it's, it's, it's been good just to have like this sort of workshop, um, environment where you're constantly getting feedback from people. And I find that, you know, is so much more helpful than just like sitting in this room typing day after day, you know, without getting that feedback. So I really, uh, appreciate it. Well, when you're starting out, it's really important to have that audience. Like it's sort of a built-in audience and it happens to be other writers who might be more critical of you or more critical than um, just regular readers out there. But yeah, that can be really good to have that built-in audience to get you writing for someone. Um, and then you get to learn a lot at the same time. One of the things that, that we've been working on a lot with a number of my students recently has been sort of taking the writing that you're doing uh, and bringing it from almost like an outline phase where it's sort of more, um, not quite in scene yet. I've been pushing a lot of people towards, towards dramatizing their things more, showing some more stuff on the page. Um, and so one of the things that I've been working on has been taking a chapter from my book that I'm working on, which is right in the middle of it, and I got to this chapter and the chapter that I was working on has a lot of summary in it and basically a lot of things where um, I'm almost telling what's happening uh, among the characters and just sort of reporting what's going on in the dialogue rather than actually showing the dialogue on the page. And so I've been reluctant to rewrite this chapter for a long time. I was sort of hoping as I hear many of you hope from time to time that it will just kind of go away or that uh, if I keep beating around the bush and doing other things, it will occur to me that this chapter is just fine the way it is. And so finally, I just sort of, um, I showed it to some folks and got reconfirmation of what I thought. And then I revised it and it only took me about an hour or so to revise it once I got in there and did it. And, and so that's the weird thing that I'm thinking about now is how sometimes we have this sort of energy block or, or just sort of an energy hump that we need to get over. And then once we get over it, you know, it only takes about an hour of work to fix something. But I spent several hours sort of um, avoiding or thinking around this process, just thinking like, 
you know, I just want to keep moving forward and, and have this chapter be perfect the way it is. Uh, as I got to it and fixed it, it's better. I know that now and I'm ready to move forward. And, and it feels like it was worthwhile. So one of the things that I'm going to be doing in the next week is releasing that chapter to you guys in its original form and uh, in the revised form. Some of you guys, Nell and Andrew and Bennett, have already seen it. Um, and Bennett was nice enough to mark it up before I did the revisions. But, you know, even before I had it marked up, I knew what was going on and the parts that were summarized were pretty clear. And so even for me, sometimes just sort of getting to that extra level of dramatization showing um, it can need an, that extra push. And I feel like it's worth it to do that. I know Bennett has been going back and forth around this a lot. Um, Andrew Hinshaw did this with his last piece where he tried to make it like way too much showing. Uh, and that didn't work. It wound up being just the right pace essentially. And um, I just feel like this has been sort of a general topic that we've, that a lot of us have been talking about for a while. Where do you sit with that, Jen, these days? Are you allowed to talk at work? I'm sorry. Did you say Jess or Jen? I said Jen. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. There's, there's a Starbucks right here, and they just turned their espresso machine on, so I couldn't hear very well. Um, I'm working on my next chapter for uh, submission, and I did what the feedback was, and I slowed down a lot. But I, I think I almost slowed down a little bit too much because it's like the chapter is like 3,500 words. So I'm going back and cutting out a lot of things that are um, redundant right now. So I apologize for the noise. It's okay. Show me some of the redundancies. I wonder if they really are so redundant. Um, I really wanted to um, describe the church. And yeah. I kind of have to change that description the closer they get to it because you can see more. Um, as she approaches, but um, I think I need to make those make the journey to the church a little bit faster. So, working on yeah. that today. Well, send me a page of it so I can look at it because sometimes I don't know if, yeah, I wonder if part of the stuff that I see that seems too thin has been edited down that way. Okay. All right. Andrew? This one? Am I the only Andrew here today? Yes. Okay. Actually, I was going to ask, did she say 3,500? She thought 3,500 words was too long for a chapter? Or is it? She thinks so. Okay. What do you think? For me, it's long. Nell well, says just, no. I just finished my first chapter one of my the 7,000th version of it, and it's it's coming in at 10,000. For a words. chapter. Is that is that too long? Uh, <laughs> I think, I don't think there's an answer for everybody. I think um, that's one of the things that, that people control individually, you know? Okay. A given author has his, his sort of comfortable chapter length, his comfortable paragraph length, um, and you guys kind of figure that out. Although Nell is freaking out about a 10,000 word chapter. But I think it, it's up to everybody. For me, I'm, yeah, I'm sort of in the 1500 word range. 
um, sometimes more, sometimes less. But if I come in a thousand, the only thing that I think about is if I come in at um, under a thousand words, which that this chapter that I'm talking about was originally about 750 words or 700 words. And, you know, honestly, I think it was content, a 1500 word chapter. And so when I rewrote it, it is 1500 words. And, um, yeah, that feels right. There's another chapter that I was working on this week that was about 2,500 words. And just because of the way that I was podcasting it and it felt like a good, um, it felt like there was a good sort of cliffhanger ending around the middle point. I ended up splitting it into two chapters. That's just something Yeah, Don. Um, is it necessary? Well, uh, let me see how I say this. Is um, why is a word count important in a chapter? Shouldn't it seems to me the context of the content would determine if it's a chapter ending or or not. And and to take that to the extreme, does a book, a novel, need to have chapters? Whoa. Um, I think a novel needs to have chapters. I once read a book by a German guy that was all one paragraph, maybe even one sentence. Uh, and I, you know, kind of an experiment. I think chapters are good. Chapters are good to help readers sort of, um, set the table again and sort of take a quick pause. I mean, I don't, if you're coming from the world where I am, which is you want to write something that's going to be a page turner and get people to read quickly. I like short chapters because for me, when I'm reading something and I'm excited about it, I might look ahead and see uh, how many pages are left in the chapter. And if it's not a lot, then I'll finish that. Mm. If it's a lot, then I just stop right there. And so to get that little extra bump for readers, I think it's helpful to have short chapters. Um, but, you know, part of that can also come from the books that you're reading and what you want to emulate based on the writers that you like. Uh, but to your original question, yeah, I think that chapters should be based on content. And so you have or you develop a bit of a given sense about what a chapter is going to look like, how it's going to feel to you, beginning, middle, end. Or you might just realize, like in this case, I realized, you know what, this feels like a really good cliffhanger. It would make the reader turn pages faster if I cut the chapter here and then they have to turn an extra page to get to the next one. Plus, if you're interested in uh, publishing online and making some money and you're curious about um, Kindle page reads, which is this thing that people are making money on using Amazon self-publishing, uh, the more pages you get people turning, um, the more money you make. So I don't know. That's not the best reason for doing it. But I think that ultimately... No, you're not going to write chapters to like a given word count, but as you do it more and more, you get a sense about where a lot of your chapters are coming in. If you're using a program like Scrivener uh, or Word or you're doing anything with it, you can see how long the chapters are and then you just feel like, well, here's my comfort zone. My comfort zone is this to this. And sometimes if it goes over that, you wonder like, well, wait, what happened there? And sometimes it's great, and sometimes you want to adjust it. Does that make sense? Eve has her hand up.
Eve, do you have no video? Or did you have a question? No, Eve? Yeah, I think with word count, um, you just kind of figure it out as you go. Do you not like chapters? No, I have nothing against chapters, but I always end them on uh, content. I never, never considered word word count. If it feels yeah. like it's a new, a new thought, a new whatever, something it just feels like a break. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And I think word count is definitely a secondary concern, but I find that it's just something that I sort of keep an eye on. I have a thought about chapters. Yeah. Can you hear me? I didn't check my audio. Yeah, we can hear you. I also just wanted to say, like, if I look at Scrivener like this, if you guys can see, down at the bottom of every chapter I'm working on, it has a word count here. So I'm just sort of conscious of how many chapter, how many words each chapter is. So this is a short one. Yeah, I guess a lot of these are, well, this one's 2,000. So I'm always conscious of it. And if I go to like this view, then I always can see what my chapter lengths are. So here's one that's 3,000. Yeah. It's kind of a feel thing and a personal decision. Yeah, Bennett. You know what I found after your last uh, Zoom uh, meeting uh, last month, Seth, was yeah. you were going over Scrivener um, during that meeting. Scrivener. And, uh, I had asked you a question about how can you look at what your total word count is across chapters. Yeah. And what I figured out is uh, what you showed me and just highlighting those different um, documents does not work on the Windows version of Scrivener, which is what I have. Scrivener. Um, yes. Scrivener, yes. Like Bartleby. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I, have to, I have to tabulate it uh, sort of manually at the end of every night. <laughs> That's odd. Yeah. Well, the other thing you could do is just highlight those chapters. So, like, another workaround for that would be um, you highlight those chapters like this, uh, like three chapters like that. Um, if I'm in this view, I'm going to get all the text and then I can just click in here, do copy all or like control a and then control C. And then I can just go into word and paste that in. And then that'll give me a word count there. Yeah. That's, that's exactly what I've been doing. Yeah. 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 You're, you're but in the back Scrivener, you can just scroll to the bottom of the selection and the word count is there. Yeah. Well, it does that for one selection, but when I select more than one, it it, it just doesn't uh, doesn't do that. It doesn't add them up for some reason. You should Not go to their website. Those literal latte guys are really good about responding to feedback. Oh, okay. Well, thank you. Yeah, don't don't mean to get this off track. I just wanted to mention that. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I've noticed. I've heard from a couple of other people who say that the Windows version does different things, but I guess an update is coming this year. Yeah, I think for the Mac, we're on version three, and the Windows version is still one. Yeah. Bennett, what was your question? Well, I was just going to comment on the uh, chapters issue. I don't know if anyone has read The Woman in the Window by Finn. It's currently a bestseller thriller, psychological thriller. 
and he has hundreds of chapters. Mm. And what he does, he uses them for dramatic effect, as you were mentioning. He'll get to a point in a scene where something really dramatic happens. It doesn't deserve uh, three asterisks. There's no shift in time. The scene continues. But he just wants you to think about that last line for a while before going on in the scene. So he makes a new chapter. For example, not to give a spoiler, a woman alone thinking about a neighbor suddenly realizes, how did, how did he know there was something wrong with the cat's leg? And you hear a whisper, because I come to visit you at night. And he's in the room. The scene continues from there, but he really wants you to think about that moment, so he starts a new chapter. There's no break in anything else. Just, it doesn't deserve three asterisks, but he really wants that wonderfully powerful moment to sink in, so he starts a new chapter. Yeah, that sounds good. I think it's hard you, it's hard to argue against too many chapters. It seems like chapters are sort of a benefit. Like people like having that extra turn of a page. White um, space. What? White it's space, kind of right. Big white space, yeah. Yeah, like dialogue. I mean, one of the things that I've said in the past is if you use a lot of dialogue, uh, and I was working with Rich earlier this week, and we were adding more uh, space breaks in his dialogue. Uh, when each, even when a new character did something physically, we added a new paragraph break in that dialogue, um, just partly to differentiate, because I think it makes the writing clearer, but um, it also makes the, it makes it move faster. Like if you're reading and you're buzzing along because there's white space and there's action in dialogue, you know, if you are reading a book and you get to page 20 in 30 minutes or, uh, you're on, you read it for an hour and you're on page 50 all of a sudden, you're going to feel better than if you uh, read it for 45 minutes and you're on page 15. And you're <coughs> like, oh man, this thing's 200 pages long, 280 pages long. So a lot of writers that I've been talking to are talking more about books that are in the 60 to even 50,000 word range. Um, you know, guys like Lee Child and those guys always try to hit it over 100,000 words. But a lot of other folks these days are talking about the 50,000 to 60,000 word range. And if it's about consistency and keeping to get new books into the market, you know, it makes sense to start going in that range. I think the big difficulty that people have is when they leave a cliffhanger at the end of a book and then readers will respond to that in a variety of different ways. Some people like it, some people don't. Eve asks, uh, does a short story always need a character arc? Because in real life, a lot of people go through things but don't change. <clears throat> what do you guys think about that? Does a story need a character arc? I, you know, from, from my perspective, most stories are about uh, exceptional characters. And I, you know, not just the average person who never changes in their life. Um, otherwise, you know, maybe there are other reasons you would want to read a story, but for me, part of the experience that I enjoy is, um, seeing characters change, you know, seeing them 
uh, go on a journey and and be changed by it and learn things and at the end become you know a situation changer as opposed to you know this person who just gets like swept along by life you know they never change so for me part of the draw of reading any given story is that character arc although for like a short story you know maybe there's some type of other hook or something else that you want to explore or maybe you're using the lack of character change for purpose but um i think there would have to be some type of purpose um, in the story for the character not changing for it to be as engaging for me personally. In a short story, can you guys hear me okay? Yep. In a short story, uh, 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 sometimes the character doesn't change, but there's a reveal at the end. So you know that the guy all along was a, a, a violent guy or, or uh, was planning all along to do something very different from what you expected. So it's not a character arc in the sense that he changed his behavior, he changed his uh, approach to solving the problem, like a traditional arc over a long story, but it, it was suddenly shown that, oh, we had this planned all along. And that works in a short story. Like you said, a lot of the enjoyment, I think, of a novel is that evolution. The guy tries something that used to work, doesn't work anymore, and he has to come up with something new. Uh, and if he does, it's, it's success. If he doesn't, it's a tragedy. I think, you know, I think it depends on genre, too. Like, if you're looking at a literary short story, then we had a story in Workshop recently that was a literary short story, and it felt like this is sort of a slice-of-life piece. Why are we getting this story? Um, and it was about a young girl. I can't remember too much about it. But, uh, you know, my big question with that story was, why are we getting this particular day in this character's life? It feels like this is indicative of a lot of things that are going on in her life long term. Why is it this particular day? And so usually what I try to look for in a story like that is, um, you know, something that illuminates the larger picture of her life. Like, it's not just like, here's a day that's just like every other but here's a day that really shows us something about what's going to happen in her whole life or what's going to happen in the next five years of her life. And so um, I look for something like that, whether it's an epiphany, uh, which a lot of short stories would have, or um, some sort of change or character arc, if you want to call it that. But then in the crime genre, if I think of a story like The Gutting of Kufignal by Hammett, there's no character change, but at the end, the guy solves a mystery. Or you find out at the end that he knew all along more than he knew um, at the more than you thought he knew. Like basically, he had solved the mystery at the beginning, but he didn't let on until the end when he confet when he told the the thief, the countess, no spoilers, that uh, she was the one who did it. And then you know you think about the Maltese Falcon; it's the same thing. Like Spade doesn't really change throughout in the book. He has like a little bit of a thinking like, well, maybe I should fall in love with her and run off and let her get away with this crime, you think. But then at the end, you find out he never was considering that and he didn't change and now he got the bad guy. So I think it depends on the genre a bit. Yes. Um, and maybe in crime genre, it's nice to have some sort of change of the character. I think if you look at uh, Connolly's Harry Bosch books. The character is certainly changing as the series goes on, but book to book, the character is grappling with some bigger, harder things that might change him. Or you think of the Dennis Lehane, um, Gennaro, 
and Mackenzie series, you know, some of those books, the characters are really grappling with things. I'm thinking like uh, of Gone Baby Gone in particular, and that's going to change the character after that book is over. But with a uh, Jack Reacher story by Lee Child, you know, it's sort of the same template every time, like this character is not going to change. And so you would see a similar kind of thing in a short story. There was a thing about The Long Goodbye that I, I liked where you never expect Marlowe to change. He never does. And yet in that book, he regrets something. He, 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 his friendship uh, changes him at the end. Suddenly, he's still the same guy, but there's a, 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 a character evolution that never occurs in, in other Marlowe stories. Yeah. Are there a lot of other Marlowe stories? Yeah, there's five novels and mm. uh, a ton of uh, short stories. And then there's a series of short stories before where the uh, character had a different name, exactly mm. the same setup. Some of them were exactly the same story too. Yeah, The Long Goodbye is um, certainly more pronounced and longer than the other books. And so he's dealing with something more because he has a real connection to Terry Lennox, even though it's kind of obscure. He's got this sort of long-term friendship with this guy. On some level, you could say like they just have drinks with each other from time to time, but there is a real connection between the two. And so Chandler is, con or Marlowe is really connected to this guy. And when he finds out that there's a lie at the center of their relationship, it affects him. Um, if you read the essay by Chandler, The Simple Art of Murder, where he talks about um, the modern crime story in that era, um, I think he's published, he published that essay in 1950 around, uh, but the long goodbye is from earlier. You know, he's talking about how emotional, how the emotional drama and emotional transitions are coming into uh, the literature of mystery. Uh, he makes the difference between the literature of escape and the literature of, um, I, I can't remember the exact wording, but it's something along the lines of like emotion or depth or character depth, the, the literature of character. And he talks about how, you know, these crime stories are really starting to involve full-blown characters who do change and, and have transitions in their lives. For me, that makes it more interesting. Yeah. yeah. I think he contrasts it with like parlor mysteries. Right. Yeah. He's coming out of the parlor mysteries Sherlock Holmes, sort of puzzle mysteries, like it's somebody trying to find the solution to a puzzle. In my first book, I really wanted to pick up with Jack Palms uh, coming out of a big transition in his life. And I was thinking about, you know, after a transition, what does the aftermath look like? And so I started with him in that situation and sort of looked to where it went. And then through um, This Is Life, he really did go through some transitions through those. They were originally three books and now they're two. And um, then the question is like, what's left of him at the end? Like his car is a big symbol for him in the first book. And in the first book, it's like all pristine and red. And then in the first book, it gets some bullet holes in it. In the second book, this guy is like borrowing it or taking care of it and decides to paint the whole thing black. And so on some level, it's like sort of a, automotive portrait of Dorian Gray where it's like kind of reflecting all the stuff that he's going through. He still looks fine, but the car is starting to look very different as he goes down this path. And then at the end of Maltese Jordans, Oh, then we don't know where he's going to be. 
No, what's going on with you? You've been working on really bulking up the thriller stuff, or are you not allowed to talk in your office? Um, Uh-oh. Well, I'm not totally free to have a conversation. So I but read I, some I'm of... I'm listening intently. Okay, good. I read some of Nell's stuff this week, and she sort of put a big steroid injection into her mystery novel to kick it off with um, basically a dead body in chapter 1.5. There's like a big assault and murder right in the first 10 pages. And I've seen this kind of book a lot. um, And it'll be interesting to see how you handle it and sort of what happens over the ball. It's like if you take a big shot of steroids and shove it into the front of your book, what's going to happen throughout 50,000 or 75,000 words, how does that affect the pace? Right. um, I'll just say a second about that. So I'm taking this um, class in thrillers and it's a whole new genre. So I think what I'm planning to do is just kind of really have a roller coaster of ebb and flow throughout the whole book. And I think I can keep that going because I don't, nobody can be on a roller coaster for 24 hours. You have to you have to go walk around and get a hot dog and do other stuff, um, rest, rest up in between your roller coaster rides. So I think if I can kind of keep that balance, but moving in a momentum, I think, I think it could work. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Also, you, um, because I've seen what you're doing, you're switching character points of view. Uh, you're in the third person, and so you'll have a character from another point of view. Right. It's interesting with uh, the Kindle page reads thing. I was reading a book by Mark Dawson this week, who's a huge Kindle page reads guy. And he keeps like switching character chapters. And there's this one character that I'm totally not interested in. So I was just like flipping on my Kindle and it's like, Oh, maybe that's a good strategy. You just like have this character that nobody's interested in. And then they just flip all those pages and they count as red. Good idea. (laughs) But um, probably not. But yeah, because you have different characters that are either like in the thick of it or not in the thick of it, depending on where it is in the book, you have the opportunity to be like high octane, middle, low octane, and then go back and forth. Right. But what do you guys think of that? Like, I feel like I have this experience of going to a reading or something and there'll be like five crime authors and one of them reads the first chapter and it's like, there's a dead body in the trunk. Someone just got assaulted while they're on their jog. Someone had to like swipe somebody's head off with a machete because it was an accident. And it's like, where are we going to go from here? How do you guys feel about those books when you come across them as readers? I'm used to it. It's, it's so typical of the genre. The big thing happens and then you got to solve it. So, that seems to be a standard formula. I'm used to getting the terrifying or, or the, you know, the backhoe burying the body in the pig farm mm. mystery. And then it just kind of back, backs way up and starts methodically solving the mystery. I wouldn't. So the backhoe references to Lee Child's, one of Lee Child's recent books. I think it's Make Me, right? Uh, I think so. Yeah. And so, but I wouldn't put that book in that, in this category. Like that book has a dead body that's being buried. And it's interesting to find out that. Yeah, that wasn't the big thrill opening, but 
Yeah, so the kind that I'm talking about is the kind that tries to like grab yeah. your face in the first one and be like, dead body. Right. Andrew, are you trying to say something or are you just typing on your iPad? Oh, I was going to say, I'll just say it. I was going to say, I don't know that I've ever actually read a single mystery novel in my entire life. <laughs> You're missing out. You're missing out. I'm sure. I just, I can't seem to ever get tired of sci science fiction. So, but I, I should, uh, I should broaden my horizons. But don't you think that that, do you see that kind of hook in science fiction books where it's something big at first? Or do you see more of like the slow build in science fiction? It's all over the place. Uh, I'd say probably some more, more modern or more recent uh, sci-fi that I've read. They kind of like to start with the, you know, there's a catastrophe or, or something that really kind of hooks you in. I've even read some recently where it's sort of like an ongoing thing where it's just, you know, you kind of have this chaos and then everything comes down and then chaos. And so there's like, like 10 conflicts throughout the entire novel which you know if you pull it off right can work i think yeah i would say that that's the slow burn which is a pretty effective method yeah don yeah <clears throat> so i want to say uh if you saw the i'm i'm thinking more of the movie than i am the novel chinatown if you have a a, a murder and okay if you can solve the murder, but in Chinatown, there's another kick after solving that. Yeah. We don't only find out who did, who did, who committed the murder, but that there was something else involved. It was a terrible secret. It, yeah, exactly. That that really outdoes the murder, but like the who done it. That is a real bonus after that. And I think that's great if you could build that. Where do you think this is going to be great? Who did who did this? Wow, there's something else here. Right. Fabulous, fabulous. So that's a great movie and a great book. I do think that a uh, why done it is tends to be a little more compelling to me than just a who done it. Yeah. You know, you also I also think of a book like Red Harvest, where it's like we find out who did it in the first half of the book, and then. We don't know where it's going to go from there, but um, I can think of a number of books that work like that. It's solved, but then it leads to something that's much bigger, uh, which isn't necessarily a wide on it, but it just gets much bigger. Um, I don't remember how Chinatown starts. One second now. Uh, the... Um Mrs. Mulray, actually the fake Mrs. Mulray comes in and she wants to know if her husband is having an affair. Oh, yeah. And, right, and uh, so he tracks that down and says she's having an affair, but that really wasn't his wife who was looking, who was, went to uh, Gitz to find out. And then the real wife comes in and says, I want to see you. Why did you, you know, check out? You were surveilling my husband. And then he finds that there is something else going on that he wants to find out what it is. Uh, so it, it starts kind of uh, ordinary. And right away, though, you find out this isn't really his wife. This lady was pretending to be his wife. So that's kind of crazy. So it kind of builds up with all these, like, it looks normal, but it isn't. Yeah. You know? It's a, it's a great, uh, not only novel, but it's a great screen uh, screenplay. That's, that's the course I'm taking now, screenplays, and that's one of the uh, movies that we're studying. It's a great piece of work. It's a great movie. Yeah. 
Yeah, no. Um, I, 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 this is really in, interesting. I, in this case, this the the murder that happens is is just going to sort of tip into the story. the The person who's murdered isn't ultimately that important because it's just going to lead to other stuff that sort of is important. Really, it's setting up um, the the initial protagonist and this dilemma that she's in and sort of what's going to happen to her as a result of this thing that she's been complicit in. Does that make sense? Yeah, she gets pulled into a larger scheme, and that person was just kind of a henchman. Right. But now she's got blood on her hands, so she's involved. What's she going to do? Right. That really has a way of, of, yeah. But that that feels like sort of a classic thriller trope where it's like – sort of a race to like get yourself out like uh, a ticking clock or like a big thing that you have to try to get yourself out of. Right. Yeah. I don't know the book that, so with the Maltese Jordans, there's not really, there's no murder. There's a guy who commits a crime uh, and then the main guy is chasing after him, but then there becomes sort of this larger scale hunt for this mythical thing, which to me just sort of winds up being kind of exciting. Uh, And then there's some characters that get revealed along the way, but I was talking to someone else about it and he was saying, well, you know, that's sort of a classic MacGuffin like the Maltese Falcon, but where's the bigger thing than the MacGuffin. And for me, you know, chasing the MacGuffin is a big part of the thing. So it's not a wide, there's nothing that anyone has done. The actual, crime was an embezzlement that happened in the beginning and then it's just sort of a big chase after this stuff but now as you guys can see in the background i got my own maltese falcon so that's pretty exciting we have this guy now (laughs) yeah you can get these on ebay for not a huge amount of money my friend had one and i asked her if i could have it she said no so i had to get one on ebay they're good. Good to have around. Have you scraped it away yet to see if there's any jewels and gold underneath? Pretty sure. It's pretty lightweight, so I'm pretty sure there's nothing underneath. It's got a very hollow sound. Yeah, there's nothing. A chocolate nothing? Not chocolate. Although that would be a great Easter thing. Yeah. The Maltese chocolate falcon. Yeah, we'll get going on that. We'll patent that. Yeah. I mean, I guess sort of the larger point to me as we're thinking about these different examples and I'm thinking about my work and Nell's thinking about hers, is that there's so many different ways to do it. Um, a lot of what we talk about in the classes is I think the craft stuff that it holds true ac- across genres and across what you're trying to, whatever way that you're trying to do it. And so it's like, if you have this like pot boiler mystery that starts off with a huge amount of octane on page one, or you have, um, you know, something that's a slow burn or a mystery or uh, a slice of life or something uh, literary where there's a big epiphany, you know, it's the scene building and, and whether you're putting the characters on the page effectively and really making that creation with the reader that I think is so important. I've been reading a a novel from a student this week um, 
and she's done an amazing job. Like one of the better jobs I've seen in a long time of putting everything into scene, literally like I'm on page 150 and everything I've seen so far is in scene. Um, I feel like we're not used to seeing that so much, you know, um, you guys have seen a fair amount of the stuff that's in workshop and it's not always in scene. So to be able to see someone doing a whole novel in scene, uh, that I'm in charge of sort of overseeing or advising, it's pretty rare. It's exciting stuff. And here, you know, to Andrew's point, uh, there is stuff that I think we could trim away to sort of ratchet up the tension a little bit and make it read more quickly. Um, but the fundamental work of really putting it all down on the page is there from the start. Could you, uh, could you expand a little bit about how you would manage backstory, information, setting, and keep absolutely everything in scene? What, what's the mechanism for that story? It's kind of fascinating concept. Um, backstory. Well, so sometimes the character, there are passages where the character is sort of remembering his relationship with his wife and remembering how his relationship with his son didn't go that well. <clears throat> Thinking about the time that his son called him and said that he wasn't coming home again, you know, various things along those lines. But every time we have some thinking like that, it's the character's body is, is, something that the reader is very aware of. So like the character is uh, in the hotel room looking across the window and he starts to think about his wife or he goes to the barbershop and this lady cuts his hair. And so he thinks about his wife or he meets this young boy. And so good to see you now. Thanks for being here. Um, so all of these things are connected to something that's visually happening for the character. So um, does that make sense? Yeah. I, I think I you can still do those things and be in scene. The question is just how you handle the scenes that you create. Are you taking the time to really put them in a place and have characters' bodies involved? And are you keeping the reader there for long enough that the visuals and the, the sensations are significant? Or are you popping in and out of things too quickly? And this this writer, I guess it's more of a pacing issue. She's she's really doing a great job of keeping me in each situation and bringing in great visual details. Like everything has the level of detail that makes me curious about it. Like they walk into the barber shop, and you know a policeman comes in the back door and like hops in line ahead of the guy who was first in line, or um, you know just different things that make the details really interesting. What somebody is wearing, how they talk, what uh, pictures they have on the mirror in the barbershop, different things like that. It just shows a level of imagination that involves really creating these places and these people and what's happening with them. Okay, Seth, is there any way you could share any of that with us? I might or, be I able mean, to. I mean, I know it's up to her, but I, I you know, because that's something I do kind of struggle with sometimes is, you know, it sounds simple. Well, what would you be looking at if you were in this position or in this place? But once you get in there, it's, I, I find that I struggle. You know, sometimes I'm just listing off what's 
okay, I got a character in a room and this is what the room looks like and this is how it looked when they walked to whatever. But, you know, sometimes I, I feel like that's just not, that's just diagramming. It's not really like saying, well, this is what they would focus on. And then, well, I yeah, I mean, I can't share this, this book with you right now, but oh, okay. one thing, but it makes me think of a book called Amigo Land by Oscar Caceres, which is about these guys who are in, um, who are living in an old folks home down in Southern Texas and they go back and forth into Mexico. And, you know, there's not a huge amount that's happening in the book, but you really understand what these people's lives are like. It's not a slice of life, life kind of thing, but it's like every page that you read, it's really fully there on the page. Bennett was reading to me a piece uh, from a novel where these two guys were talking to each other in a bathroom while one of them was relieving himself. And it's like the way, just the way that this guy washes his hands afterwards and dries them off and moves through the bathroom tells you so much about him because you're able to see it and create it. Or it's like that Carver piece that I always share where the at the end of the scene, instead of just leaving where he gets off the phone with his wife and then goes to the bar, he gets off the phone, he goes out to the car. It's difficult for him to start. He has to dig it out of the snow a little bit. And then he starts driving, um, you know, that kind of stuff really creates the world. But yeah, there's lots of examples that, that we can share going forward about that kind of writing. Well, as someone like Andrew, who's you're working on to get us to stay longer in scene, put more things in the scene. Sometimes I feel like I haven't learned the rules of what sort of setups to avoid so that I can put things in scene. For example, we all know if you have too many characters in dialogue, it gets really confusing. It's hard to deal with. On the other hand, I always wind up doing something dumb, like having a character locked in a room by themselves. Whereas the, there's no dialogue, your, your choices of keeping it in scene are sort of inner monologue or inner dialogue or flashbacks. And how much of that will the reader take before they go, God, just get get out of that room, talk to somebody. So are Honestly, there traps that we should avoid falling into so we can have uh, more, more fun with scene? Yes. Yes. I can tell you exactly the trap that you should avoid. You should avoid the trap of thinking, when is my reader going to get bored of this? That's the trap right there is when you think, you're worried about the reader getting bored or wanting to jump out of your scene. Like the book that I'm reading right now by this woman, uh, the character gets locked in this motel room every night because he's, he's digging a, a tunnel for these cartel people from Mexico into California. And huge parts of the book, the guy is either digging a tunnel or he's locked in this motel room. And none of those are boring. And in fact, as I'm reading it, I'm actually think like the one thing that's hanging on in my head is it seems really weird to me that this guy hasn't eaten in like 150 pages. Like he's been staying in this motel for like three days now. When does he eat? So I'm basically saying like, you know, there's things that I would want more of. So I think, you know, it's partly the approach. Like if you always want, if you always feel like, um, I feel like I've said this a lot lately, but it's like, if you try to avoid doing bad things, then I don't need to know about him taking dumps. I don't need to know. Of course, Jeannie would. Thank you, Jeannie. Uh, 
Yeah, I don't need to know about that, but like, well, because I know that there's a bathroom in this place, but if the cartel just like throws you into a, um, an apartment and locks you in there, of course there's a bathroom that you can use. So I can just assume that, but it's like, what is the cartel leaving food in your refrigerator? Is the cartel bringing in burritos every night? Like what's, so this kind of stuff I wonder about, I don't need to know about the pooping, but, um, yeah, so you know, you give me a fair amount. Okay, bye, Eve. You give me a fair amount, and often what happens is I want more. So the thing where you're you're you put your eye on the ball that is, I hope the readers don't get bored. Uh, then that's what you're focusing on, and you're not focusing on what's actually happening with the characters and what potential or what elements could happen in that scene. And so it really shortchanges you. It's like if you jump out of an airplane and you have a parachute and they just tell you, like, whatever you do, don't land in that pond. And you're falling, falling, falling. You keep looking at the pond. I don't want to. That's what I don't want to do is land in that pond. Well, guess what? If you're paying a lot of attention to the pond, you might wind up landing in the pond because you keep looking at it. It's going to pull you over there. But if you actually think about, well, okay, the pond's over there. I really want to land in that field. Then you, you're going to land in the field. It's, it's all about having something that you're focused on that you really want to do that's a positive instead of trying to avoid a negative. And so the negative that you're avoiding is actually causing you to shortchange the craft that you've learned. And the craft that you've learned can show you how to really connect with the reader. So if you think how can I make this scene really connect with the reader? Then you're going to approach it differently. And then you think, well, okay, so the first thing I need to do is extend everything as much as I possibly can until Seth says, this is too much and I can cut away this part and that part. But if that part of your brain keeps kicking in and thinking, oh, when is the reader going to get bored? I'm worried that the reader is going to get bored. There's something that's shortchanging right there in your process. How's that for an answer? It's kind of the Zen of writing. I can deal with it. You better. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, that's the only answer. I mean, the, it's the approach that's, that's more problematic than the individual things that you might do. It's the worry. You know, if you're worried, then that's what comes across on the page to your reader. But if you're confident and you're excited or you're eager and you're enjoying what you're writing, then that comes through. Really find something to write about that you that you like or have your characters do things that are interesting to you and then, you know, that will really put energy on the page. Like Michael Chabon, um, you know, he his use of language is very different than mine and I might not like his use of language, but there's clearly an energy. Like I was reading his book with my Kindle. And so I can push the button. I can push the screen to have it define all the words that I don't understand. And there's like a lot of words in his most in Telegraph Avenue that I didn't understand. And they're so obscure. They're like literally pulled out of some weird medical dictionary, half of them. And I don't know why he's throwing them in, but, I really get by any quibbles that I might have like that because there's so much energy and enjoyment in his writing that I want to read more of it. So, you know, 
to get really zen on you. Find a way to take your story in a way that, that you enjoy, and that will really engender your readers to like it even more. So the question isn't like what to avoid, but like what could you have your character do in that locked room? There's nothing wrong with being in a locked room. What could you have your character do in that locked room that your reader might really enjoy? Maybe like when you sit around, you can do this cool fart sound with your hands and you think that's really fun to do. You guys hear that? And so like if you start writing that on the page, like that's going to be an interesting description that someone's going to want to read. Like if you like doing that, you're going to be able you like you stare, you look at it, you figure out like, oh, this finger is by my thumb. I put this finger like this. And then you look at it and you figure it out. It becomes interesting on the page. So the question, if to come back to it, no matter where your character is, what's interesting about it to you and how do you focus on that thing that's interesting? There's nothing to avoid except being bored. So enjoy those locked rooms. When this guy's locked in the motel room all the time in the Mexico novel, he finds himself looking out the window all the time. And there's this woman who has an apartment across the street. And so he starts looking at her all the time and sort of trying to peek in her curtains. And she's sort of alluring and interesting. And so then he starts to think about and, and tell himself stories about her. And he compares her to his wife and all these things. And it just sort of, you know, it spawns in all these directions. Uh, but if she said like, oh, no, I can't have him locked in a room. It's what you it's what you do with it and how you handle it. So you need to just take your eyes, Bennett, and rotate to a different viewpoint. Take your eye. You have your eye on the wrong ball. Keep your eye on the enjoyment ball. We were having this conversation with Lynn last summer in a big way. So it comes around. And another wonderful session of monthly office hour has come around. Um, thanks to you guys for being here. I really appreciate it. I will put up the recording. Uh, I will try to pull excerpts from it that are more useful than others and repurpose them into shorter recordings, which may or may not happen or be effective. Uh, but I will also, so I recorded, um, the audio of the new version of that chapter that I was telling you guys about from the Maltese Jordans, and I'm putting it out this week in Sunday's episode, but I think next week on Patreon, I'm going to put up, um, a link to the chapter before I rewrote it. And then the chapter after I rewrote it. And I might also, uh, put out the audio of both. Uh, where I read each one and then talk about why I made the changes and stuff like that. Um, so I'll let you guys know on the email when that is available. Do you think you'd be, so assuming that you're interested in reading the chapters before and after, would you also be interested in hearing the before and after, or do you just want to hear the after, or do you just want to hear me talk about it? Jeannie's confused. Both. What? Both. Yeah, I want to do both, and I don't think it'll take me that much time to um, record the original because it's pretty short. So I'll do that, and I'll get it out and send you guys a link. Thanks for being here. Good questions, as always. Keep in touch and keep writing.